one who ever loved could look at me and know that I love you. Anyone who ever dreamed could look at me and know I dream of you. Knowing I love you so. It's a sort of power ballad, is it not? Just one of many hits penned by Bert Bacharach. Just one of many. Bert Bacharach, the songwriter who turned easy listening into high art, has died, age 94. It's almost impossible to choose a favourite, but this is one, one of mine, sung by the incredible Dionne Warwick. And we talk about the songwriter's legacy at the end of the panel, about uh, 10 to 5 this afternoon, so more on Bird Backrack uh, after uh, our next uh, stories. You're on the panel on RNZ National. Wonderful to have your company this afternoon. And by the way, do keep in touch uh, with RNZ across the uh, nights into the evenings and in the mornings and through the weekend to keep uh, you up to date with the latest in terms of um, weather coverage. It is coming up to 25 to 5 uh, on RNZ National, the panel. Well, the combined death toll in Turkey and Syria from Monday's devastating earthquake has risen to at least 21,000. The area has recorded almost 650 aftershocks since two earthquakes struck. Hundreds of thousands made homeless. The scale of this tragedy is immense. And from his home in Melbourne, uh, Salir Yujil was clinging to hope that his sister could be pulled alive, trapped under the ruin of a three-storey building. And after waiting for news for 48 hours or so, Cyril has had the terrible news yesterday that his sister has passed away. Dr. Soler Gilles, welcome to the panel. Thank you, Wallace, for having me. And look, I, I just want to acknowledge um, your sister uh, Rimsey's passing in what will no doubt uh, be an extraordinarily painful moment for you and your family, Celine. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, not just my sister. Uh, about uh, 20 of my relatives, they passed away during that earthquake. My sister, my cousin, and uh, his daughter, grandchildren, my brother's wife, family. So totally uh, 20 uh, people died from my family because the city that uh, I was born, Almost 80% of the buildings uh, either collapsed or damaged, and still the people are under the rubble. Well, um, I just don't know what to say, uh, Saleh. I'm, I'm extraordinarily um, saddened uh, for your losses there. I mean, that is quite something. This is a city. So this is Adyaman, is that right? A city of a quarter of a million, about 150 k's from the epicentre? That's right. You were given up-to-date information on what was happening there or not? Uh, well, uh, I'm in contact with my uh, family, although family members, although the 
connection is limited because no internet or it's not stable and uh, no water no no sewage and, uh, and so the weather condition is very 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 difficult uh, so uh, but uh, the official figure of the death is is much more than what has been said in the media because you know many people they just take their disease and, and bury it without even letting government or authorities know because in, in Islam, uh, the burial should be happen as soon as possible. Uh, so that, that's why, from in, in the villages, in the rural area, uh, even in the cities, many people who are buried were not registered. So the number are very, very high. Yeah. So, Lil, we have a panel with us this afternoon. It's a panel program, and Rawani joins us as well as James. If they can, uh, if possible, jump in and might ask her a comment or a thought. Rawani, do you have any? Uh, uh, comments to make on this. Oh, oh, Salil, just sending you, you know, it's just devastating and to lose that many family and to have that, uh, you know, real connection as well to, to that loss. I mean, we feel it, uh, mm. you know, without having that connection, I can't even imagine. Um, uh, yeah, just uh, devastating. It's, uh, you know, seeing... Um, you know, even those rescue efforts um, and mm. seeing those, you know, those beautiful moments, um, just knowing the uncertainty that those lives, they might live, but, you know, in what conditions to, to go on with. Um, but, uh, yes, uh, would would you say, Salil, the um, infrastructure there, like would that have been a major, you know, obviously, you know, this is such a, mag- you know, it was such a forceful quake, but the infrastructure we're talking about wouldn't have been that great as well in these buildings? Uh, that's right, because, you know, the necessary steps uh, have not been taken. Uh, the Turkey is an area that that earthquake, uh, you know, too many times happened in the past. Uh, particularly, the buildings are not uh, built according to requirement of, you know, uh, to be stable during the earthquake. Yes, I think the authorities have responsibility, the people have responsibility, uh, but I don't think so. everything is done because the same magnitude when it happened in Japan, let's say, you know, 100 people, 200 people die, but when it happened a country like Turkey, we see that uh, tens of thousands of people die. Uh, so that's mm-hmm. why, you know, the stretch of building is, is one of the major problems. Right. Uh, James. Yeah, look, so sorry for your loss, Salil. It's hard to imagine a, a worse set of circumstances that we're learning about the infrastructure, the weather. It's it's below zero yeah. for the people who have a living to lay outside. There's the lack of uh, infrastructure, lack of medical facilities at the border with Syria. You've got war complicating the efforts. It, you couldn't do a thought experiment to imagine a worse no. worse set of circumstances. So, Salil, how can people help if they want to do something to uh, assist from New Zealand? Uh, well, I don't know much about New Zealand, uh, but uh, on the website uh, in Australia, we have Australian Relief Organizations. They are collecting a donation, and that donation uh, will be sent to Syria and Turkey uh, because of people are suffering. You know, many people, they don't have to shelter, no tent. And uh, I, my, my relatives, they are sleeping in the car because the houses were damaged, and they cannot leave, by the way, also, still some of the family members under the rubble waiting to get their bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, I, in Australia, there are quite a couple of humanitarian aid organizations. They are collecting donations. But in New Zealand, uh, I don't have uh, much information about it. 
Sully, for the next steps, the, the next part of the process for you, for preparations for wider whānau, wider family, what now for you? Well, first of all, uh, I'm thankful, you know, to Australian government, thankful to Australian people. I'm very thankful to, you know, my community, my friends, my relatives, my university. Uh, but uh, the, the, there is a, a huge issue there. The people, they with trauma, you know, many people, they have some psychological problems here. Uh, you know, when I receive such uh, text messages, phone calls, uh, it, it, it helps me a lot. It, uh, it, it means a lot for me. And in addition, I'm trying to kind of like use my emotion, emotion for the good purpose, for the common good, keeping myself busy with the good things, keeping my family with the good things. So that's helping us, you know, for dealing yeah. uh, with, with, the, the, with the issues, uh, you know, at least uh, coping with the grief and, and, and healing. And it's quite hard to imagine, uh, uh, Dr. Eugene, but I do understand that uh, this happened and yet you're a lecturer um, you didn't miss class. Uh, yes, I, I didn't. I didn't because uh, some of my students, they were waiting for two years due to COVID. We couldn't make it. Uh, I did not want to cancel it uh, because these students, they are going to be chaplains, so they are going to provide emotional care, spiritual care for those who are in need, the patients in the hospital and in the crisis. And some of my graduates, for example, they are... Uh, they joined the crisis chaplain in New South Wales in the bushfire. So that's why uh, I did not want to, uh, you know, delay my course. And uh, But uh, I'm thankful to my students. They, they also provided me a lot of help. I think uh, one of the best therapy for me, it, it was be with them and, and teaching and learning from them. Dr. Yajir, I really appreciate you taking the time out for us to... Um uh, to come on to Radio New Zealand. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, be well. You okay? Mm. Yeah, not really, but no. What do you say, eh? What do you say? Yeah. It is 70 to 5. You're on the panel on RNZ National. Um, and we, if you missed that, we were talking to Dr. Siri uh, Yuzhao, who uh, was clinging to hope that his sister would be put out of the live, uh, out of the rubble, but no... Her, she and 20 family members have uh, passed away uh, in the city of Adyaman in uh, Turkey. You're on the panel on RNZ National covering uh, many issues this afternoon. Now to this, uh, we go back to this because earlier, because we've got a big response to this, earlier in the week we got a lot of feedback from panellist Simon Pounds, I've been thinking, on childcare during the school holidays. If you took just for this last nine weeks two working parents' entire allocation of annual leave, it wouldn't, and put them end on end, you wouldn't get just this one lot, and then there's still, you know, at least three more two two week um, things coming. So yeah, I don't have a solution, but I'm just wondering, like, how do people manage? Is anyone working on this? And not to mention how expensive holiday programs can be. So it's been one of the most talked about topics on the panel and someone who is working on a solution is Dr. Alan Joan Nelson, who's behind the work school hours concept. Dr. Nelson, welcome. Thank you. Thanks very much. Yeah, pleasure. And something um, really jumped out at me. Uh, you said uh, a while ago that... The heart of the issue here is glaringly obvious. 
there is a societal mismatch between school being nine to three and work nine to five. Can you explain that a bit for us? Oh, sorry, say that again? Can you explain that for us? Yeah, sure. So it was just a bunch of research I did about the experiences of working parents and all the challenge that, challenges that they were having. And as you say, I just found it's, it's obvious that school day is different to the work day and the work year is different to the school year. And so it means that every parent, which roughly 80% of the population become parents, have a juggle... Oh, I was going to say they have a nightmare of a juggle um, after school every day and every school holiday period. Uh, and I think we can do better. So what's the solution that you're proposing? Yeah, sure. So I believe the, the idea behind hashtag work school hours is looking more at outputs. So instead of the inputs or hours that people do, we focus more on the outputs that we want them to deliver. And we also focus on giving them as much flexibility as possible to do their job and do it well, but do it in and around their other commitments, which could, of course, include children. And so what I've found is that there's a lot of, uh, for example, part-time workers who are on a part-time contract, therefore being paid less, but they're still actually delivering the same workload as their full-time colleagues, proving that you know you can actually make some improvements in productivity when we focus more on the outputs as opposed to the time. So in terms of the school holiday challenge, my challenge to businesses is why don't you make it more uh, possible for parents to be with their children during the school holidays and deliver their work for you outside of the school holidays? Oh, yes. And if you do that, you'll get a massive competitive advantage in terms of being able to attract some really great talent, and we're struggling. Yeah, I can kind of see where you're going with that. Uh, what do you reckon, James? Well, I, yeah, taking up the challenge of trying to make bring school and work together. So I'm thinking... It, it, look, this is an issue that comes up time and time again. Yeah. You know, parents just say, how do I make this work? I'm, my, bo- my boss is actually asking me to stay. I've used up my leave. Yeah. No, well, look, I'm thinking you should try and make school perhaps a bit more like work. So I'm thinking maybe go into school, tell some of the kids we're going to have to go through a redundancy consultation with them, saying, look, <laughs> sorry, kids, we're going to have to let some of you go. Um, we'd like you to reapply for your job here as a student. Um, we may be able to keep you on. Just get them prepared for what's, for what's next. Alan, James is not just a lawyer. He's also a comedian, a jolly good one. He's a really good one. As you, good on you, no, James. Please, please don't make the solution that we extend school. It's about actually giving people, not just parents, but all staff, more work-life balance, which improves their well-being, improves their performance work, uh, and that involves more time outside of work, not more time at school. Yeah, Ronnie? Uh, well, being uh, not without um, children, I love school holidays because it means the tr- driving to and from work, et cetera, is a whole lot easier um, because the traffic in Auckland is horrific during school yep. um, terms. Yes. Uh, so I'm a big fan of the holidays. I just feel and have always felt that our school holidays are sort of tied to the Northern Hemisphere and the Christmas holidays and all of that, and I feel we're totally out of whack. I think kids and families miss out on the best part of summer when they're back at school in a hot classroom, and I think all of that needs to change as well as being more flexible. So Alan? controversial. What do you reckon, Alan? 
Yeah, so I guess I'm not the expert in terms of when is the best time for the school holidays to be. Um, I think education experts should determine you know, when is the best time for children to learn and then set the timetable around that. But what I am saying is that organisations, if they want a competitive advantage to attract really good talent, if they want their staff to improve their well-being, they should do far more to make it possible for parents and even staff that are not parents to tend to their outside-of-work commitments. Yeah, okay, I was... Serious point. Um, for lots of organisations I've been involved in, it's, it's walking the talk on flexible work hours. Lots of employers say that they provide flexibility for employees four days a week, working around the hours, but they need that needs to be substantive. Lots of times you hear that talk, but actually the demands on the employees become the same as if it's a full-time uh, position or not flexible. Mm. So great idea, but people do have to, the employers have to, have to do their bit to make it work. Ellen? Yeah, they absolutely do. I mean, there's lots of companies that have flexible work policies that's kind of lip service, and then people then effectively get sort of subtle or covert disadvantages if they actually take advantage of those policies. Um, but I've now been working with quite a few organisations who are adopting these types of policies, and they've been talking to me about the commercial benefits. So on my website, which is my name, Ellen Jo Nelson, the tab, hashtag work school hours, has got some case studies on there now of businesses in New Zealand oh, yeah. who are actually operating this way, and it is commercial commercially smart for them to do so. Interesting. So that's uh, hashtag uh, work school hours. Uh, Dr. Alan Joan Nelson, thank you for that. Uh, appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. Now, um, we had a teacher get in touch. says, on my drive home yesterday, I heard the comments about how long the school summer holiday break is and the difficulty it presents for parents paying for childcare during this time. While I sympathise, the issue is not about the length of school holiday breaks, but possibly about support for families who are working during holiday time. It should never be about the break being shortened. The holiday time is so necessary for the recharging of batteries for students and teachers alike. It all It is also the only time when major maintenance works can be carried out on school property while uh, staff are off campus. And they've kept on rolling in. This is a hashtag retro afternoon tea. Sharon says... Yeah, gosh, volleyballs. Uh, oh, yeah, mushroom. Yeah, that's Gotta the one. Be beautiful, beautiful. Uh, Cheerios, cheese hedgehogs, of course, as we mentioned, and you've got the you've got the fairy bread, and I think we missed out the fairy we bread. We did James. miss out the fairy bread. Yeah, that, yeah, that was an oversight. Yeah, uh, and oh. one uh, so one chef got in touch. Uh, said, oh, where is it now? Uh, a chef got in touch. I'm a chef by trade, says Tobias, and you cannot go past. The curried egg. <laughs> the curried egg. <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely. Oh. Nine, maybe you can go past it, Ravani. Well, it's so hard to eat, you know. Yeah, it's so hard exactly. to eat. And smell factor, I don't know. And you've got to have them piping, not haven't you? They have to be piped properly. What? They have to be piped, yeah. yeah. Does have to be piped in, yeah. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> it is uh, eight to five. You're on the panel on RNZ National. Now, Bert Backrack, age 94, has left the building. What do you get when you fall in love? A guy with a pen to thirst your bubble. That's what you get for your trouble. I never fall in love again. I never fall in love again. A die-hard romantic whose mature style might be described as Wagnerian lounge music. <laughs> 
of the New York Times. Mr. Bankarak fused the chromatic harmonies and long Who's angular. Seen, uh, it's, I'm quoting the New York Times. Yeah. Uh, fusing <laughs> the chromatic harmonies and long angular melodies of the late 19th century symphonic music with modern bubbly pop orchestration, said the New York Times. With us is Dr. Gregory Cam, who lectures at the University of Auckland School of Music. Dr. Cam, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. Okay, that's a critic there quoting uh, quite an unusual way of describing his music, but there's something in that. I mean, you've got the, as they say, the chromatic harmonies and the long angular melodies musically. That's right, isn't it? It's totally right. That's really what sets him apart from other songwriters of of his generation. Uh, He was very adventurous with his form and with his melodies and with his harmonies of the songs. Because I want to unpack that a bit, because I was thinking about this. Of all great songwriters, be it, I mean, Lennon McCartney, they're great, but others, um, what was his singularity? What was his secret? I was thinking, well, his melodies are quite angular, Mm -hmm. and they're extremely, extremely tuneful. They are. They're also very long. They kind of spin out phrase after phrase after phrase. They're hard to sing because it's hard to find a place to breathe when you're singing them, and they're quite rangy as well. Uh, But somehow he manages to combine that ranginess and complexity with tunefulness. So even though we might have a hard time seeing them, we recognize them right away whenever they come on the radio or if they're used in a, a film or a television show. Amazing, yeah, Rowani, you are you a fan? Is there a is there a oh, bird back like rack? Massive, yeah. just Wasn't you I? know what he did, and him and Dion Warwick especially, absolutely, like, they just made music. one the of the soundtracks great singers so of all oh. time, Rowani. Yes, absolutely. It was like he made those songs just for her, you know. Yeah. Um, I was lucky enough to meet him at a um, press conference he did, and would have been about two thousand and eight, I reckon. Um, for One News, and it was just, I mean, meeting him was just like, it was like meeting a god because I just love his music. Um, the mu- that Like the music that he put to those movies and just brought them to life, you know, those countless scores. He's a genius and, you know, thank you for leaving the music. Yeah. But um, just another, another great musician <laughs> that seems to be leaving our, you know, world at the moment. Gregory? Yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, I, when I think of the mid-60s music, I think of him first. He, he, something about his work really calls to mind everything that was going on musically and in society at that time. It, it's a sort of interesting pocket between um, the bubblegum pop and the Beatles getting complex, where you start right. to see complexity coming into it. And his use of the studio is really another thing that sets him apart. Um, the way that he layers the instruments and um, mixes in very interesting ways so you get new sounds coming out of instruments and new combinations of sounds. James? Yeah, look, I think it's, it's the melody. So I have this theory that if you start saying the song title, if I start saying a to- song title, you will finish it in melody or it will go off on your head in melody. If I start saying raindrops keep falling, your brain is already going into the melody form. Or if I say what, oh, okay. what the world needs now, You'll start. I'm not going to sing because I think people have had enough misery this week. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but Wallace, you're the, you're the, you've got the singing voice. Yeah, if I sing, birds will fall from sky. Yeah. Listeners will bleed from the ears. But you you immediately go to the melody. 
it just rings yeah. straight is, away. Is, 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 does James have something there? I'm not quite sure actually if the lyrics came first in the partnership or he wrote the, he, he wrote the music first. I'm not sure, but I, I think there was a mix of techniques. Sometimes mm. he came up with a, with a melody and then later put the words to it. But that's another good point. Um, I think the, the New York Times review, or, or obituary, I should say, where it likens him to Wagner is kind of right. But really, the classical composer that I would find a similarity with is Leo Janáček, who did similar things with Czech the Czech language in his setting of text mm. that Bacharach does with English. Amazing. I, that's, that's my hot take on it. We can't really, uh, it's unfair, isn't it, to pick a moment in Bacharach's life, a, a song, if you will, but is there something, a motive, a hook, a melody, Gregory, as a, as a musicologist that stands up for you? That's a hard one. Yeah. Um, I think the, the brass solos in um, Wishing and Hoping is a good example. Oh, I yes. think the, the main chorus of Promises, Promises is, is a great example of his rhythmic dexterity. He's changing meters every bar in that. Promises, da 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 dum da 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 dum da 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 dum Going between oh. six, eight, and two, four. <laughs> wow. <laughs> great to have it's you on, Dr. Camp. isn't it? It is absolute genius. And I think we're going, going into a little bit of um, Burt Bacharach right now. Here it comes. Yeah, what a way to end a show, eh? You've been wonderful, both of you. Rwani Pereira, James Elliott, thank you for being with me this afternoon. Thank you to my producer, Charlie Drever. I'm Wallace Chapman. I will see you Monday, 3.45. Till then.